And whatever obstacles are before you, whether you're trying to overcome bitterness or whether you're trying to overcome a business challenge or whether you're trying to succeed or untangle a pattern that you've been just wrestling to get free from, would you think that climbing mountains is succeeded with love and kindness and humility? So, well, maybe. That idea would be laughable to any Roman in the world Jesus was born in. Laughable that you would be humble to succeed, that you would only sleep with someone you love or were committed to. Laughable to the Roman ethic. Yet Jesus shows up and says, I am going to transform the world with a new way of thinking and loving. It's going to elevate slavery and end up leading to abolition. It's going to elevate the handicap. It's going to ele- elevate the uh, women in the chauvinistic society it lived in. It's going to elevate freedom. It's going to elevate forgiveness. People learning to love even their enemies. And Jesus says, I'm going to overturn the empire of Rome with this little bitty thought of a new type of God love. I was, uh, went to lunch a couple years ago with a buddy of mine. And uh, he had another friend who was a pretty well-known person. You'd probably recognize if I said his name, but I won't. Um, he was a well-known person, and, and he kind of came out that he was an atheist and wanted to let me know, and he didn't want that necessarily public because of his, his public persona. And we'd recently both seen a debate between a Christian and an atheist, and he said, you know, I really enjoyed that. And, you know, I think what I've come to respect about you Christians is your ability to believe things when there's no evidence to it. And it was honestly a genuine compliment. He was honestly trying to say that he's a facts person, he's a data person, and having faith is the absence of data and facts, and therefore he respects our ability to be naive <laughs> despite, or, or sincere maybe, he might have said it despite the evidence. And I said, well, I appreciate the compliment that's in there, but I don't think you and I define faith the same way. I said, you seem to think the kind of common view that faith is the absence of evidence. I call that ignorance, the absence of evidence. Faith is putting a little bit of confidence in something that is true. That's what evidence is. That's what faith is. It's finding out that God is faithful. His promises are true. His way of living does work. And putting a little faith in that, it's amazing how it begins to grow and blossom and transform marriages and families and communities and countries. He said, I don't So we just had this great dialogue about faith. I said, well, think of it this way. I can have... A lot of faith, big faith, in thin ice. And I can walk out on thin ice, and it doesn't matter how much faith I have, I promise you this, I'm going in, right? Big faith does not change thin ice. And I can have a little faith, smallest little bit of faith, on thick ice. And I can walk out on that lake scared and terrified, but I took a step because somebody measured it out. It was two feet of ice, and guess what? I'm not going in. It's not about the size of your faith. It's about what you put your faith in. Faith is only as strong as the substance it puts itself in. And that was the dialogue we had that day. And Jesus is going to say the same thing. He's going to say, faith can be little if it leans on something big. He, he likes it to a mustard seed. He says, if you have faith just the size of a mustard seed, and if you've never seen a mustard seed, literally if you took uh, a salt and pepper shaker and, and took some pepper out, and if you found one little fleck of pepper, a mustard seed is about half the size of that. And they say, God, we want to increase our faith. We need bigger faith. And Jesus says, you don't need bigger faith. If you have faith just the size of a mustard seed, smallest 
plant in his region. You could turn to that mulberry tree, pull it up by its roots, planted by the sea, and it would obey you. To which you're like, this is why I don't believe in Jesus. I've not seen a lot of Christians walking around like superheroes, plucking up and commanding trees to fly around. So why would Jesus use this little bitty seed metaphor with this flying tree metaphor, and what in the world does that mean for us? Well, I think when we study what a mustard seed is and what a mulberry tree is, it's going to make a lot of sense. Because Jesus has even a little faith in what I'm talking about. A little faith leaning on something big can accomplish great things. See, faith can be little. You don't need bigger faith. You just need to put it into the right thing. Lean on something that's big. And so he's going to talk about mustard seeds with two metaphors, the metaphor of a tree and the metaphor of a mountain. He's going to say to us that if you've had a pattern, if you've had a root, if you've got self-talk you can't get rid of, that is just causing you to go in a bad way, if you've got bitter talk that you've been trying to untangle yourself in bitterness, if you've got an anger problem, you're like, this thing has just tangled its way into my life, and I've tried hard, I've had big faith in my ability, but I can't beat the depression, I can't beat the anger, I can't beat my temper. You don't have to have big faith. You just have to put a little faith in God's way of doing things, and it will begin to transform you. And Jesus comes with claim support here. What he says can transform your life literally transformed the known world of the Roman Empire. So the faith support that he can do in our life can be seen in what happened to Western civilization. A little bit of faith, leaning on something big, can transform our life. Let's start with a tree. He's talking about a tree. It's a really unique thing, this mulberry tree. He says a little faith in a big truth can uproot deep roots in your life. So what are some things that have maybe rooted themselves into your thinking? It might be your ego. It might be your temper. It might be whatever. But you would say there's something big happening in my life, and I just cannot untangle it. Jesus says a little faith in this big truth I'm going to give you, and you'll be able to uproot some of those systems. Let me show you what, again what mustard seed looks like because it's kind of helpful. If you see it out in the plain, it's, it's beautiful. It's yellow. It looks like a weed because it is a weed. It's a fast-growing weed he compares his kingdom toward. Yet if you zoom in on one of the flowers, it's really beautiful. Little yellow flowers embedded in that little bitty flower are these little bitty teeny-weeny little specks that he says you just need that much faith and a big truth to uproot these mulberry trees. Now, why does he reference a mulberry tree? Well, it's kind of interesting. The mulberry tree, if you've ever seen one, uh, I recently got to see Van Gogh came to town. Well, Van Gogh's dead, but Van Gogh Experience came to town. I don't know if you got a chance to see some of his artwork. But one of those was the mulberry tree that he painted. And so the mulberry tree is very, very famous, but we used to have a couple mulberry trees in my yard growing up. If you've ever seen a real one, there's some distinct things about them. So let me show you what a real one looks like. The distinct thing about a real tree is, you know, very flowery. It's got these, these you know, mulberries all over the place that just make a mess of your car, a mess of your yard. That's what it's known for. It's, it's berries. However, what it's really known for is its roots. You ever seen the roots of a mulberry tree? They're just massive. They just grow and grow and grow and entangle and entangle and entangle and they go everywhere. In fact, they can go right through a sidewalk, right through concrete. They can uproot beautiful things in your life. They can take things that look so good and were so well put together and now they're just entangled and and destroyed. Look at the size of these roots on this tree. 
If you were to think about your life, what are some things that have embedded itself in your life like that mulberry tree? You would say, man, I wish I could untangle myself from my ego, my ability to take criticism. I wish I was better at controlling my temper. I wish I didn't have these sad thoughts of depression that my grandma had and my dad had. just seems like these have been passed from generation to generation. I want to be free from that root system that has got a hold of me. And I've had a lot of faith in my ability to manage it, and I have not done very well with that faith because that lot of faith is in yourself. Jesus says, if you will put a little faith, mustard seed type faith, in my promises, in my power, in my kingdom, in my way, you'll be able to uproot mulberry tree-like systems that have taken over your heart and your tongue and your soul. Let's go back to the passage again. He says what? If your faith is the size of a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, he's using it as a metaphor here, a mulberry tree with all these roots and things, be pulled up by the roots. I'm going to yank out this system, yank out this thinking, yank out this pattern, and it will be planted in the sea. It will be tossed away from your life. Something you've been dealing with for weeks or years or decades can finally be in the sea. It would obey you. But to do that, you got to try some new things. you got to try my way of living. Try forgiving when you want to be bitter. Try ridding yourself of all malice. Try praying for your enemies. Oh, I don't want to do that. Just try it. Try it. I want you to try loving when you want to hate. I want you to try humility and being open to feedback when you want to try and build yourself up and think you've got it all together. Just try it and see if it doesn't begin to uproot these root systems that have been in your life for generations. I was talking to a guy recently, he's been coming to our church, and he talked about the, the roots that organized religion had put into him. And it was not good. <laughs> he was sharing, he said, Chad, you're not going to believe just the, when I went to church, it was about rules and regulations and condemnation. He said, it was so bad when I was a teenager that the pastor would get up and speak, and I'd be sitting in the second row, and he would point me out, out loud at church and say, I'll call him Dwayne. Du- Guys, you know Dwayne here? Don't be like Dwayne. He's going to hell. <laughs> and he's telling the story. I'm like, holy cow. Imagine the embarrassment. Imagine the hostility. Imagine the, the, the self-hatred. Imagine the, who wants to get close to a God who does that? Who wants to get close to a community that would treat you like that? I said, what brought you to Horizon? He said, well, I kind of stumbled in the door and arms crossed. And I said, well, I'll give it a shot. And I listened for a day and I went, this is different from what I grew up with. And you would talk about Jesus and how Jesus described the life he was calling us to and describing the life we could be part of was so different than what I'd heard about with rules and regulations and, and ritual. And I just felt like, Every time I came in, my arms were a little more open. And now I just, and he got kind of teary telling the story and kind of nudged his wife to finish the story. And she finished the story. And, and I remember sitting there and I said, man, I am so sorry for the way religion, I'm certainly a spokesman of religion, I guess, but I'm very much against religion. Jesus was against religion. The way it embedded so much entanglement into your life. And man, I am so humbled so humbled that you would walk in and give me a chance to give voice to what Jesus really meant. And he began to describe over four or six months just all of these root systems 
in his life that have been pulled out, things that you'd think I'd go to a counselor for 20 years and I wouldn't get free from that nonsense, and how they all began to shrivel up as he began to just follow the way of Jesus. I have another friend that if you saw her resume or you saw her life, it would be like, boy, must be nice being her. Multiple houses, very affluent, yet she started coming to our church because a friend invited her. She would sit only in the back row, and she would tell me years later, I wouldn't know her at the time, but years later that she'd sit in the back and just cry. She was going through such hostility and such a difficult divorce and such a horrific circumstances, and she just was so angry and so bitter from those roots of bitterness that began to entangle. And, and if you heard her story, you'd say, you've got a right to be bitter. I'm like, oh, no, I know, I think I'd be more bitter than you are. But she began to hear about Jesus and the power of freedom and forgiveness and not being entangled in that. And she began to put a little bit of faith in Jesus' way of doing it. And she began to find freedom from bitterness, which opened up her heart to peace and joy and love. And I began to see these roots just shrivel up. That, man, I would say it might take 30 years of counseling and maybe you'll get to tolerable. And now abundant joy flows out of her. And she would say, I put a little faith into a big truth on how to forgive. And I can forgive my enemies because I was an enemy of God and he forgave me. What are your root systems? What are your mulberry trees? That maybe you need to try a little faith in a new way of doing things and see if it doesn't uproot something you've been trying hard to uproot. Well, then he moves to a mountain. It's, it's the same metaphor of a mustard seed, but now he talks about a mountain. It's actually really fascinating. Like, why would you choose a mountain metaphor? He's going to say a little faith can move mountains. But there's different kinds of mountains in your life. Some mountains... We build to exalt ourself. Even if you have trouble forgiving yourself, this is kind of counterintuitive, but some would say, I can't forgive myself. I'm really beating myself over what I've done. And I say, well, God says he could forgive you. And you say, yeah, yeah, maybe God could forgive me, but I can't forgive myself. What are you doing? You're saying, my opinion of what I've done wrong is better than God's opinion of what I've done wrong. So I'm going to trust me to beat myself up over God's opinion, ability to let me go free. See that? Even self-hatred or, or self-punishment is actually exalting your opinion over God's. It's easier to see in ego. It's easier to see in people who complain or, or are ungrateful or, or are egomaniacs. But Jesus is going to say we're all building our life on a mountain. And the mountains we build can either exalt us or exalt others. So the question is, what kind of mountain are you climbing? And what kind of mountain are you building? So back to the... Uh, to the metaphor here of the mustard seed. Here's how Jesus says it. It's pretty fascinating. He says, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, now we're not talking about the mulberry tree anymore, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible to you. So again, we're saying, really, I don't see a lot of Christians walking around literally moving mountains. What in the world is Jesus trying to communicate here? Well, did you know in Jesus' day, somebody had moved a mountain? And when Jesus was teaching from Jerusalem, you could see the mountain he moved? You see, this metaphor is more than a metaphor. It was about kingdoms and empires. A little glossary maybe before we jump in here is that all through the Bible, God used the idea of mountains represent kingdoms or priorities or administration. I'm going to jump back to 550 B.C., a guy named Daniel. Daniel predicts 
in advance, 500 years in advance, the kingdoms of the world. He says there's going to be the Babylonians who have conquered us right now. They're going to be conquered by the Medes and Persians. Exactly what happened in history. He then mentions by name the nation of Greece, Alexander the Great. Nobody thought Greece was a power at 600 BC. Mentions that Greece will take over as a kingdom. And then it mentions this other terrible nation the Romans would take over. And then Daniel predicts that at the time of the Romans, this almost like rock from the sky will come down into that kingdom and it will break that kingdom up and it will begin to form and grow like a mountain. Here's the summary of all that. A stone that struck the image, this thing from, from heaven, comes to earth, and it became a great mountain, and it filled the whole earth. And then he interprets, that's a dream. Now we will tell you the interpretation of the God of heaven has given you a kingdom. So without discussing too much on Daniel, God is predicting the kingdoms of this world and their priorities and saying during the time of the Romans, something from heaven is going to come down, and it's going to form a brand new kingdom and that kingdom is represented like a mountain that just keeps growing and moving jesus is going to use this idea to say if you put a little faith in my kingdom my priorities my mountain it will transform the world but he's saying that in a culture that has seen a person literally move a mountain if you don't believe me let me take you to israel for a moment it's pretty amazing if you've ever been to israel there's a few things to note the ancient walls you see around the, the Dome of the Rock were built by King Herod. That's going to be the main person we're going to talk about today, the guy who moved the mountain. Here in Jerusalem is a place called the Mount of Olives. Jesus did a lot of teaching here at the Mount of Olives. You'll see some trees just behind there, the olive trees. But to the right, you'll see what looks like a whole bunch of concrete work. That used to be all olive trees. Today, it's all tombs. People want to be buried here on Mount Olive so that when the Messiah comes, if you're Jewish, you'll be the first to see him. So you'll see families often gather here at what was the Mount of Olives, and they will put rocks on top of these tombs, a way of saying, Grandma, I'm building on top of what you gave me. Mom and Dad, I'm building on top of what you gave me. But in Jesus' day, all of that was actually olive trees on the Mount of Olives where Jesus often taught, and he taught about mustard seed here. Now, just at the base of this section is what we know as the Garden or the Garden of Gethsemane. It's actually not called the Garden of Gethsemane. It's a garden with a Gethsemane. Jesus meets with his disciples here right before he's crucified and says, my kingdom that's going to overcome the Romans starts with me dying for you, dying for the Romans, forgiving my enemies, and raising myself from the dead. He will pray in this garden under these olive trees. His disciples would be like, this is not the way to build a kingdom. This is not the way to transform the Romans. You're going to forgive them. You're going to die for them. You're going to give your life for other people. This, these are not the priorities that matter. Yet Jesus will sit under an olive tree like this, praying all night long, God, if there's any other way, I'm for it. But not my will, but yours be done. And just under this garden is a cave, if you've never been there or never seen it. And in this cave is where Jesus met with his disciples that night. And he said to them, let me tell you how my kingdom is going to advance. And he's standing next to a Gethsemane. A Gethsemane is an olive press. This is a Gethsemane. You'll see on the right-hand side these giant bags full of olives. All of those olives from the olive groves will be placed in here. And these giant telephone poles and rocks are cranked up to crush, crush, crush the olives to let the oil come out. 
Jesus chose this location to tell his disciples about his kingdom. I'm going to change the world by allowing myself to be crushed and see the forgiveness that comes out. So he's back up at the Mount of Olives teaching his disciples, and there is wild olive there even today, wild mustard rather today. And he says, guys, see this mustard seed that spreads all over this mountain? If you will have this much faith in what I'm trying to do and what I'm teaching you to do, that mustard seed will move mountains just like King Herod did. And if you're standing there on Mount of Olives, looking at all that mustard seed, you can look out in the distance and you can see an actual mountain in the distance. That's not any mountain. That is a man-made mountain that was moved there by King Herod. King Herod wanted to be able to look down on the city of God when he built that mountain. If you go and visit it today, it's known as the Herodian. The Herodian. This was his crowning achievement. Look at this place. Now imagine that prior to Herod, this was a flat plain. That mountain was moved there, bucket by bucket by his slaves and employees. This man knew how to build stuff. He has multiple palaces, one in Masada. You've probably heard of that one before. If not Masada, Caesarea Maritime. But this was his crowning achievement. This place has incredible pools. My wife and I got a chance to look around in this pool. We have a piece of marble from that pool that we still keep at home. Everything about this mountain was designed to say, look at me remember me, remember how important I am. I am the greatest architect that's ever lived in history. Now, it's pretty amazing this city or this mountain that he moved here was to represent everything about his kingdom. Everything that was important about Herod was me, 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 remember how important I am. Years later, this becomes an elaborate maze in fact, when the Jews were being pursued by Romans and others through history, they would often run into some of the cave systems inside of this mountain because they knew some went nowhere, some went around in a circle, and some let out. So they would use this mountain as an, a, a labyrinth to finally escape if they were being chased. But in Herod's day, he moved this mountain to exalt himself. In fact, at the top of the mountain, you can see the remains are still there of this giant turret he built. He's going to put his house, his room, on top of that thing. Room underneath it for marketplaces, for people, for his servants. But ultimately, he built the mountain as high as he could. He moved the mountain to where it is so he could then build his house higher than that. See, ultimately, he could look back at Jerusalem, known as the house of God. He wanted to look down on them so everyone in the known world would look up at him. So here's the question. In our careers and in our relationships, who doesn't want that view? Who doesn't want to have that kind of legacy? But do legacies come from building a mountain to exalt yourself? Or do the lasting legacies come from building mountains that exalt others? That's the competition here between Jesus' mountain and empire and kingdom and Herod's empire and mountain and kingdom. Herod will say, exalt yourself. That's the way to leave a legacy. Jesus will say, exalt others. That's the mountain that leaves a legacy. So here's the question. What do you know about King Herod 2,000 years later? He truly was the greatest architect that ever lived. This is just one of his palaces. Yet most of 
most of us have only heard of this palace and this place because of a footnote in the Christmas story. Jesus was born in the days of King Herod. Which mountain lasted? Which kingdom sustained? Which one spread and took over the world? The mountain to self or the mountain to others? This ultimately isn't just a castle. It's known as the Herodian. This is the final crowning achievement. And this was to remember when you walk up, you see this. And this was to say Herod's body was actually buried here. So, when I'm walking along the Jordan River, I snap this picture of a mustard seed. That's a wild mustard seed. And then I get to walk up to the Herodian. I got to stand next to that giant statue, that circular reminder of the power of King Herod. And I asked myself, what am I building? What am I living for? See, he put a lot of faith in his accomplishments and his builds and his legacy. But now it's just rumble in a museum. What would it look like for you and I to do something different, to say, I'm going to build a different type of mountain. I want to move mountains that exalt God and exalt others in my life. I'm going to trust that the way to find freedom through my depression is to start to serve other people and take my eyes off myself. It's counterintuitive. In the same way that Herod literally moved a mountain to exalt himself, we can figuratively move mountains when we choose to exalt other people, put our spouse's needs ahead of our own, when we swallow our pride, we decide to apologize first. We decide to live for something bigger than just ourselves. We're all going to have to climb mountains, difficult ones, big ones, fun challenges. But are we building the mountains that last? And Jesus says, a little bit of faith in my type of mountain, my type of kingdom, and it can transform your heart, your marriage, your workplace, and your family. It can uproot systems and habits in your life if you live for something bigger than yourself. I don't know if the name Eli Cohen means anything to you, but I was reading about his story. I actually focus on it in a Netflix uh, special called Spy. It's a true story of a guy named Eli Cohen. Eli was Jewish, had a comfortable life as a business owner. It'd be easy for him just to have enjoyed the comfort of life and to just go through his day, and that would have been fine, and then I would not have faulted him for it. But he had the opportunity to serve a bigger kingdom. So he began to live in Syria, where he represented himself as a Syrian business owner. And they didn't realize he was Jewish, so they took him as a Syrian business owner. What they didn't know is that he was operating as a spy for the Israeli government trying to figure out how the Syrian government was trying to kill them at the time. I think it was the 50s or 60s. It was the time of the Six-Day War. So Syria is trying to decide how they're going to take out Israel, and so they have hidden all these underground bunkers under the soil that cannot be seen. And as a Syrian business owner, Eli Cohen has been financing them and helping them, and he comes over, he gets a chance to see these underground bunkers in a place of Israel known as the Golan Heights of the northern section. And he can see all the Syrian soldiers are hot, and they're sweaty, and there's no shade. They come outside, and there's just no trees anywhere. So he turns to the Syrian general, and he says, well, why hasn't your government, why hasn't our government provided shade for you? Well, we're out of sight, out of mind. So Eli says, I will do you a favor. I will buy eucalyptus trees for the army. 
we will put eucalyptus trees all along here so that the soldiers during the day when it's hot can come and enjoy some shade. That sounds wonderful. Little does they know that Eli Cohen, he, he telegraphs back to the Israeli government, need money, send money, buying eucalyptus trees. Buying eucalyptus trees. So sure enough, Eli gets eucalyptus trees planted all along Golan Heights next to every one of the Syrian underground bunkers. Fast forward a few months, and the Syrians think they're going to come and wipe out Israel. They're a new nation. There's no way they're going to make it. Israel will overcome all of the forces coming against it in what's known as the Six-Day War, where they defeat the Syrians and others. In six days, they win the war. And one of the ways they did it is it came time to find out where the Syrian underground bunkers were, and they said, just aim for the eucalyptus trees. And they took out all of the enemies trying to overcome them simply by aiming their weapons at the eucalyptus trees. All because a business owner who could have easily lived a comfortable life in business and would have been fine to do that, chose to live for duty and for service and to build something bigger than himself at great risk to himself and his family, he chose to say, I want to live for something bigger than me that saves other people, that rescues other people, that helps other people. What kind of mountain are you building? In your marriage? If I could really get honest with your spouses or your kids, would they say, yeah, it's really all about dad. It's really all about mom, what she wants, what she needs. If I talk to your parents, would they say that you look to serve other people or is it all about you, complaining what you need and what you don't have? If everything you're doing for the world is everything that everybody did, what kind of world would we have? If everyone just repeated your model. See, God offers freedom. He wants you to move mountains and it doesn't take a lot of faith. A little faith, leaning on a big truth, can uproot anger, can uproot depression, it can uproot entangled habits, but it can also switch your priorities from one mountain that's been driving your decision making to a different mountain that allows for rest and margin and legacy and the things that really matter. And at the end of time, you will find that Jesus is known around the world because that weed spread everywhere. And Herod is barely even known except for a footnote in the story of Christmas. I'm going to invite the band to come out and do a song that you've probably heard many times. And I want you to think about the mountains you're climbing. And maybe those are mountains of things that have seemed so big because you're like, I don't know if I'm ever going to get through this. This is a tough time with my kids. This is a tough time with my parents. This is a tough time in my life. This is a tough time in business. I love these challenges, but I'm just wearing out. I don't know what those challenges are, but God would say, if you will put a little faith in my priority, a little faith in my way, we can climb mountains and move mountains together. And as we move them together, I will fill your life not with anxiety and ego, but with peace and joy and love.